This is my last interview with the Keeping It Civil podcast. I am moving on to other projects, but I want to say to the listeners, I'm grateful for uh, you having tuned in, and I'm grateful to my friend and co-host, Henry Thompson, for this collaboration. I'm sure that he will go on to have great conversations, and I encourage you all to continue listening. Thank you. Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Keeping It Civil podcast. This week I was joined by John Tomasi, who was a political philosopher at Brown University for roughly 25 years and is currently the president of the Heterodox Academy. John and I had a great conversation about a wide range of issues. We talked about his graduate school experience down in Tucson at the University of Arizona. Uh, We discussed uh, viewpoint diversity and the work that the Heterodox Academy is doing. We spoke at length about his 2012 book, Free Market Fairness. And we also discussed the role of libertarianism as he sees it in contemporary American political thought and in American politics. So please enjoy. John, thank you for joining us. Welcome back to Arizona. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. So we understand that you study down at our rival down south at the University of Arizona. Uh, What first brought you out here? Well, I came to study philosophy, and I had been kind of a wandering student as an undergraduate. I was in and out of four different colleges and universities for a variety of reasons. And when I first applied to graduate school, I was rejected every place I applied except for one place, which was the University of Arizona. This was in 1988. I didn't realize then Arizona was starting to become well-known as a a philosophy powerhouse on the rise. It had been prominent in some areas of philosophy for some time, especially the theory of knowledge, epistemology. But it was now starting to rise in other areas too. I didn't know what I was getting into. I was picturing the Wild West and coming out from, I was coming. I was living in Vermont at the time where I grew up. I had a motorcycle and I decided to arrive in grad school on my motorcycle, which I thought would be kind of an act of daring and courage to cross the country for <laughs> my first long bike ride. And uh, I still remember when I, on the very last leg, when I arrived in Tucson for the very first time, I came in off the highway on my motorcycle. It was just so beautiful. And seeing the saguaros for the first time and seeing that scenery, just as a young person starting to coming across the country to study philosophy in the desert, there was something just wonderful about it. But I also remember from that day that I as I came into town right near the U of A, I was stopped at a red light and the sun was coming down on my, I was wearing a t-shirt, probably had no sunblock on because I didn't know about sunblock being from Vermont. <laughs> I remember being at this red light and the sun was so hot that I would look at that red light and think to myself, if it doesn't turn green really soon, I'm just gonna fall off this bike and that's gonna be the end of my Arizona philosophy career. But it turned green and I got to campus and <laughs> 
I came to study the theory of knowledge, epistemology, and at that time, Arizona was was probably the best in the world in epistemology. Keith Lair, John Pollock, and Alvin Goldman were kind of the big the big three, probably the three most prominent epistemologists in the world. And Keith Lair, in particular, I worked with him in my first semester in a, an epistemology seminar where all these students who were just I'd never been around such smart people in my life and so committed to philosophy. And there was this incredible spirit among the students there and among the faculty too, about trying to build something great. And they made us feel, even someone like me who just kind of barely got in and was just kind of on my motorcycle trying to figure out what I was doing out here, they made me feel that I could be part of building something that was important and really, really, really excellent. There's just a sense of camaraderie, a very competitive sense of camaraderie. We were all, we were all trying to write articles. We were trying to write papers for our seminars that were potentially publishable articles. And Keith Lair, this wonderful teacher and a, a brilliant epistemologist, he, uh, he especially encouraged us to think of us, ourselves as, as colleagues, even as first-year graduate students, people who weren't just writing papers like students, but people who were writing articles that might be a contribution to the field. It was a really special time in my life. We're going to talk later about your book, Free Market Fairness. I'm wondering to what extent the ideas that you discussed there were kind of percolating back in those Arizona days. Yeah, very much so. I didn't know it, of course, <laughs> but I can. I, it's it's strange looking back on sort of the path my career took. I arrived at Arizona thinking I would do a theory of knowledge, but in that seminar with Keith Lair, my very first semester, I did realize that everyone around me was smarter than I was, and I just it was I loved it, but it just seemed I, I didn't feel like I had the ability to go with them. And then I also took a class that semester with a wonderful professor named Alan Buchanan. And Alan Buchanan was teaching a class in political philosophy. And in that class, Alan was writing a paper himself that we were all sort of helping him write in classic Arizona style. And there was a big debate between people who think that rights are the most important things in society and people who think that community is the most important things in society. And I didn't know anything about any of these debates, so it was all new to me. But I had this idea, one of the early weeks in the semester, that in fact, rights and virtues kind of go together. That if you think about virtues of community, like generosity, for example, to know what generosity is probably requires we have a previous conception of what rights people have. So if someone gives me a laptop, I have to know that it's his laptop for me to know he's being generous. If he just stole the laptop, then it's not really being generous, it's being dishonest or something. So it turns out that a lot of virtues, like generosity, actually rely upon rights in the background. And so I wrote a paper for that class for one seminar saying, well, maybe rights and virtues are conceptually connected. So instead of there being these two different schools, maybe they actually can work together. And Alan, my professor, liked the paper enough. He said, you should write it into a term paper. So I wrote it into a term paper. And they liked that too. And they encouraged me to send it off to a journal. And the top journal in our field is called Ethics, which has a rejection rate of 97%. And professors try to get published there. And I was a first-year grad student. But my professors at Arizona said, hey, why not, send it to, why not send it to Ethics? So I sent it off to Ethics. And it got accepted there to our, our collective shock and, and, and amazement. So I published an article in Ethics combining rights and virtues. And now looking back on my career, you know, that's kind of been my go-to move with everything I do. A lot of my articles and my books and what I'm doing now with Heterodox Academy, it's about trying to, I'm not so good at making distinctions. I think that's what the epistemologists are really good at, the sort of technical philosophers. But I am kind of dispositionally inclined to see connections and to try to bring things that look different together. So in my book, Free Market Fairness, which is the book I'm most well known for, I try to combine, I try to develop a theory of justice that combines 
very strong property rights ideas, ideas that you see in sort of libertarian or classical liberal pro-capitalist thinkers, with a very strong conception of social justice that you see in communitarian or democratic, let's say, um, ideas. So you found your way to Brown University where you taught for 25 years. Yes. And then you made the decision to leave academia to take over the Heterodox Academy. So that's a, a big decision. I'm wondering what led you to that choice and then, you know, what work is the Heterodox Academy doing? I'll just start by saying that I was a, an erratic student. I didn't like school. I loved to read books, but I didn't like going to school. I found a lot of the school re- really boring and like painful to sit there. But I love playing sports. And many times I would be in meetings with my coaches and with the principals trying to find some way to get my grade average up so I'd still be eligible to play sports. But what what I always did was just pursue things that interested me. If a question or a course struck my interest, I would do really well in it. When I arrived at grad school at Arizona, suddenly I was in a world where people wanted me to do exactly what I always wanted to do which is find an idea that interests you and pursue it wherever you want to take it aggressively and as enthusiastically as you want. And finding new ways to think about things was really prized at Arizona as it's prized in the academy. I had a difficult time being a student in high school and in college. When I got to grad school, things just really sort of took off for me. And Arizona was a place that really kind of it changed my life and I turned a corner. And I mentioned that article, that essay I wrote that became a term paper, which became an article. My second year at Arizona, That article got noticed by some people at Oxford University, and I was invited to apply to Oxford's graduate program, which was unthinkable to me three three years before when I was getting rejections from every university in America, typically in the return mail. And so so I had a chance to go to Oxford. I transferred to Oxford, and sort of the same thing happened to me there where things went well, and I started publishing more things. And then I was invited to go to Princeton, where I spent a year as a postdoc, and then had my first job at Stanford, and then finally went to Brown. And at Brown, I settled down, started a family, started a career. And I was at Brown actually 27 years. You know, I had a wonderful experience there. And while I was at Brown, I built a center called the Political Theory Project, which was inspired by a couple of students I had who, these wonderful two students came to me one day. And at Brown, they called themselves the Cool Ivy. And the reason for, for that is that at Brown, there's no required curriculum. Students can take whatever they want to take. But it's actually even cooler than that because if there's a course you want to take that's not being offered, a course you can think up in your mind that you think should be offered, if you can find some faculty sponsor to teach the class, you can bring the syllabus that you designed to the professor and have the course taught for credit. Anyway, one day I went to my office, and this is a fundamental story for my whole life, so I'm just going to tell this bit. I went to my office, and there were these two students waiting for me, two juniors, both very well-known around campus. One was a very popular, very handsome person who was sort of the well-known spokesperson for the Democratic Party's main platform on campus. And he was a remarkable person I'd known since his, his freshman year. He'd write articles for the student paper. There were really brilliant discussions about sort of mainstream Democratic Party positions. And surprisingly, he was with a student who was one of the least well-liked person on campus, a student who was not a the first one actually was literally a supermodel who would actually go out. I mean, he literally would go off to go modeling, doing modeling gigs. He was like, you know, he, he was everything. This other person was not a supermodel, and he was the campus conservative who would write really thoughtful, brilliant articles of defending mainstream planks from the Republican Party. So this is a person who, as an undergrad at Brown University, you know, left-leaning place, would write an article about you know abortion, why abortion was wrong, or other positions from the Republican Party. But they surprised me because they were waiting for me because they had been secretly meeting these two very prominent people on campus. 
because they they felt that that at Brown at that time at least they never had a chance to take a class that could make them understand why an intelligent person could be a Republican. Because most of the professors at Brown, almost all of them in fact, leave, lean very left, they designed a new class. It was called Knowing Right, Conservative Thought in America. And the two of these students, for their own very different reasons, wanted to take a class that would teach them to think for themselves about these issues. And the way they formulated it, it was actually the, the one on the, on the left who formulated it this way, he said to me, I didn't come to campus to become a more skillful defender of some inherited ideology. I came to campus to learn to think for myself in new ways about things. And that really struck me, that idea that what those students were aspiring to, aspiring not just to become skillful defenders of inherited ideas, but aspiring to become free thinkers, fresh thinkers, maybe leaders, thought leaders. That idea on their part has just really struck me, and it, really, and it stays with me now. And so I built this center based on their idea. What time period is this? This was, so I started that center 17 years ago. Okay. And I'd been involved in some campus controversies, usually to do with free speech, and we were trying to find our way in these issues back then, as we still are today, I suppose. But that idea that we owe students the chance to think for themselves is an idea that I deeply believe, that idea that we have a, an obligation to create universities and to craft courses, to craft our conversations, but craft universities so that they can realize that promise that's unkept, it seems to me, too often, that we try to set things up so that students don't just learn inherited things, they learn to think new things. And a new way, a way that I think about that now sometimes, I think about leadership. Like, what's it mean to be a leader in our society, a civic leader, for example? I think that leadership's about building bridges where chasms exist. So you see a divide, and a, a leader is someone who doesn't just rally their own forces and get them more energized to run over the enemy. There are leaders who act that way. But truly great leaders, I think, are people who, who look for those chasms, who look for those divides, and then aspire to build bridges across to connect the two groups. But to do that, if you think about it from an engineering perspective, if you're going to build a bridge across a chasm to the other side, you need to know what's over there. And you can't know what's on the other side just by looking across the river. You need to actually go over there and study the other side and think about their viewpoints sympathetically. And the best students I've known, the most inspiring students that I've worked with, and the best professors I know and the most inspiring professors I know are people who did just that. So, as you know, I'm a law professor, and yes. you know the pedagogy is um, very much the Socratic method. You know, you, know, you don't have to adhere to that, but you know, you try to employ it in the classroom. Yes, I'm often playing devil's advocate, and you know, we have the benefit, I guess, of opinions where there are dissents, so we can kind of, you know, foreground the differences that there might be between judges and justices. So I, I get that in my teaching experience, but I wonder, you know, for a graduate school professor or undergraduate professor. It's different, right? It's not that kind of dispute and that kind of appreciation of opposing points of view. It isn't foregrounded in the way that it is for us at a law school, I think. So I wonder, how can professors do that? Is it about you know, how you curate the reading list? Is it about the conversations you have? What, what can professors do, and then more broadly, universities, yes. to try to achieve this? Well, I think that's the $64,000 question. I should probably inflation adjust that. That's the $64 million question for universities today. And the organization that I left Brown, you know, in, in January, I left my job at Brown. And I left that job because I've been thinking about that exact question you just asked. How do we think about the university system across America as a whole? How can we make it a place where, 
where better conversations happen across divides, where people become more likely rather than less likely, they become more likely to be able to learn from each other. And I think we're in a place now where at many universities, people are not being taught ways to build bridges where chasms exist. They're being taught more warrior attitudes. Um, maybe not intentionally being taught those things, but I think that's often the, t the case at many universities. But can I just press on that? So you say they're being taught that. So who, who, who is, is the professors you think are indictable here, or, or, or is it just a cultural thing? It's complicated. It's complicated. I mean, there is, use the expression devil's advocate, which kind of caught my attention because that's a very common situation we find in American university life, especially when you talk about political topics. Because there, there is this imbalance, an ideological imbalance, if you look at voter registration records, for example, a professoriate, there's a very strong imbalance in a liberal direction rather than, say, a conservative direction. So very often in classes, most students are often taught by professors who lean left. And the best professors on the left, it seems to me, are ones who do try to serve as devil's advocates, and they raise the viewpoints from the other side. And you can teach very effectively doing that. But I know from my own experience as a teacher and previously as a student, it's just different, someone playing the devil's advocate for that view, from actually hearing it from someone who actually deeply believes it. And that's one of the challenges we face, I think, about is, is about trying to have more viewpoint diversity in the universities. And I'm speaking now when I say viewpoint diversity in terms of ideological diversity. I actually think it's a much broader topic than that. And Heterodox Academy, you know, we're an academy of 5,000 plus individual professors, all of whom share a commitment to these three, three values. And the values are open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement. So it's not just about viewpoint diversity. And viewpoint diversity is not just about left and right. Viewpoint diversity means things like having people involved in the conversation who've been ex excluded in conversations for historically. So people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different religious backgrounds, racial backgrounds, racial, racially written texts, for example. Viewpoint diversity, am I, as I understand it, as you think about it, Heterox Academy is way beyond just left and right. That triumvirate of values, open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, constructive disagreement, that's a set of norms that a large number of professors, 5,500 so far that we, we grow every day, that we're trying to think to ourselves, well, how can we make those values more lively and a more active part of every student's experience on campus? And it's not, it's the students, it's we, we're focusing on changing the culture of teaching because we care so much about the next generation of people, but it's also how we think about research. In fact, Heterox Academy began with a small group of professors, Jonathan Haidt, my colleague at HXA, is one of the leading people in this group. A small group of professors started to worry that in their discipline, because most people, he's a social psychologist, and there's some incredible number, like 90% of the people who are social psychologists identify with the same rough political orientation, that they weren't framing their questions in a very sophisticated way. They weren't being challenged enough when they started framing their research questions because they weren't being confronted by people who saw the world differently than they did. So they began the project as a research project, but now it's become a much broader, bigger organization really looking at the quality of education in America, in part because we see that young people are going to become the future citizens. And if they don't learn the habits of mind and the habits of heart of truly listening to others, 
truly thinking of their adversaries as fellow citizens, even when they disagree, then we could be heading in a direction of increasing, if it's possible to increase it, to have increasing polarization and animosity in America rather than being a community that, that really works together to build a better society for all of us. There's a kind of presumption here that the university is playing a unique role in society because one could say a lot of these issues, they really are upstream from the university or college. By the time people come to college, they're still young, they're formative. They're in yes. the formative intellectual years, but for so many of these issues, I feel like the research is suggesting that a lot of this stuff starts even when people are younger. Yes. So I wonder if there's any uh, notion of kind of trying to target younger people or, I mean, I study election law and democracy and politics and stuff, and there's a kind of common refrain that, you know, we need better civics education yes. targeted in grade school. So what's the relationship between that work and what you see the role of the university playing. Yeah, that's great. I, I read a lot of that literature too. And, and there's, you know, this, the formation process of a human being and a human character is complex and, it's, and it runs for a long time. It begins before schooling starts. It begins at home and many, obviously, and friendships play a huge role in the way young people grow and change. At Heterox Academy, we focus primarily on colleges and universities, that sort of 18 through 22 year range, because that's our target that we're trying to change and improve. We're interested in the, the areas right above and right below that. So we're interested in, especially in high school and also in graduate school training. So we focus on collegiate experience, but we are, are very interested in high schools just for the reasons you say. And there are a whole variety of groups now in this space. There is an interesting movement afoot, I think, on universities. I think that we've been through a really difficult time the last couple of years on college campuses, a lot of pain. You know, I, I have this idea that you can look at the campus controversies in the state of American higher education from two different perspectives. And one perspective, you might call that the battlefield perspective. And that's the perspective that, that sees you know, these conflicts on campuses that we're all reading about in the newspapers all the time. People fighting and arguing, shutdowns happening, all these different things that are unfortunately part of the recent college landscape. And that's a valid perspective. There is a lot of that going on. We need to be aware of that situation. But there's another perspective. I think what we're seeing right now is that we're all suffering together. The people on the two sides of these debates, or the, the people yelling at each other or the people being yelled at, they're not aware of it because they're, they're so busy arguing and fighting and hurting each other. But in fact, if you look at it from a more abstract perspective, they're all struggling and suffering together. And the reason that they're suffering is because I think we're in the process, I hope, of giving birth to something that the world has never seen. Because the world has never seen a university system which is at once truly diverse and truly inclusive and also deeply committed to open, respectful discourse across those differences. If you think about the great universities across history in the West, Bologna, Cambridge University in England, Oxford, Harvard in America, and many, many others, there are always, and there have been periods in these universities' histories where there was a lot of values that I talk about for HXA, for example, open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement, they were fairly well realized in, each, in some of these universities in their golden eras. And yet in every single case, without any exception, those values of free discourse and open inquiry were being achieved among a select group of people. They were different, for example, in Harvard in their 1920s, at a time when they had, were keeping Jews out and keeping Catholics out, never mind lots of other groups I'll name in a minute. They're still a diverse group. They'd be a, the son of a wealthy planter from the South or an industrialist from the North or whatever it might be. So they'd go there and have these wonderful open-minded conversations talking late into the night about all these great, wonderful debates. And yet, later on, we started adding 
Catholics and Jews to the conversation. And then, amazingly, we started adding women to the conversation. And now African-Americans and Asians and people who identify in different ways and sexually, and we're still finding the different dimensions of diversity to bring in, different social classes now being brought into the universities. And so we're in a situation now, which has never been seen in the history of the world, where we're trying to struggle with this great accomplishment that we're still in the midst of, of truly trying to create universities that are truly diverse, truly inclusive, while still holding on to those traditional values of viewpoint diversity, respectful disagreement. And we're making a mess of it. It is kind of like a birthing process. And there's kind of, I mean, frankly, there's kind of blood everywhere. And there's a, there's a baby being born, I hope. And there's an umbilical cord that's perhaps tied around its neck. And we have to try to see whether we can find some way to give birth to this new thing. And Heterodox Academy, it seems to me, I, I say to my colleagues sometimes, they were in some ways trying to be like a doula. They were trying to gently help us from the inside, help universities from the inside get through the battlefield, get through these difficult pain of birth, because we're trying to create something genuinely new. Okay, well, let's turn to your book, Free Market Fairness. So this is, I wouldn't call this an airplane uh, <laughs> uh, book. Uh, it's an it's a academic book. It's it is. a book it of is. political philosophy, political theory. Uh, as you said earlier, there's, you, you draw out this taxonomy between libertarians and classic liberals and what you call high liberals. That's right. And as you said earlier, you're a, you're a you know, there's lumpers and splitters. You're a, you're a lumper. Uh, you're saying, I want to bring, take ideas from each of these schools of thought and try to produce something workable, right? And the, and the move you make is to, I mean, you seem to kind of align yourself most closely with classic liberalism, it seems, although you do have some sympathies, I think, with libertarianism, but you want to take those ideas, and particularly the idea of economic liberty, and merge it with John Rawls and other high-minded liberals right. and their notions of fairness and social justice. So I hope I summarized that properly, but if you could just talk a bit about what your notion, we should say that the hybrid model you produce here is you refer to as market democracy. Yes. Uh, what are the benefits of that? And you know, how did you come to that by connecting you know, Hayek and uh, David Hume with Rawls and, uh, you know, Martha Nussbaum and others. Sure, sure. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to read my book. It's, it's not a beach read, as some of my friends have told me. I think it tells a good story, especially in the early chapters, about the history of how we got to where we are right now. Let me just say something personally about how I came to The View. At Brown, I have two really close friends who are political philosophers, and we often would argue late into the night about political philosophy. And my starting points in political philosophy, as, as you detected from reading my book, are very much classically liberal. I was for a while a very sort of strict libertarian when I was a young person, and then I moved more towards a more nuanced classical liberal view. But it's a view that takes economic liberty very seriously, that thinks there's some moral value in in the things people do to make money for themselves. And I get that view from my family. My father died when I was very young, and my mother raised me and my three sisters on her salary as a middle school art teacher. And I watched what she did, and I watched how she saved and spent her money, and the pride we felt in her, and the pride she felt in herself that she she did this thing. And that her work wasn't just about making money, nor was it just about teaching art, though it was teaching art in a middle school. It was about being in the world in a certain way, and having a certain kind of self-respect because she was independent. So I saw early on sort of the moral value of economic liberty beyond the productive values of economic liberty, that markets make lots of good stuff or lots of stuff anyway, whether it's good or bad, I'm not always sure, but they make lots of stuff. But separately from that, there's a 
a moral dimension to economic liberty. Anyway, my friends and I at Brown, my two colleagues, they're both very strong on the left, strongly progressive, very committed to social justice, and very skeptical of economic liberty. So we'd have arguments late into the night. And there was one time we were arguing late into the night, the three of us, as always, the two against one, as always. We were talking about working people and especially about the poor. And at one point I said, well, on markets, if you really care about the poor, you should care about markets and free markets because over time that's how you help the least well-off best. And my friends both stopped and they said to me, well, why don't you just say that? I said, well, I always say that. Well, they said, why don't you actually just say that if markets did not help the poor, you wouldn't support markets? And I said, well, it's true. If markets didn't work to help poor people, I wouldn't be an advocate for markets and for limited government. I'm an advocate for limited government because I truly believe it helps the poor. And again, they said to me, well, why don't you just say that? And I said, well, how do you want me to say it? And they said, well, say that social justice comes first. That is, we evaluate institutions based on whether or not they help bring everyone together and, and be sure that no one's left behind. And so I sort of converted on that day and I realized, you know, I'm not just in favor of individual economic liberties because of the, the range of freedom they respect and protect, though I do care about that from watching my mother and her life. I care about markets because I care about being in the society where no one's left behind. And as a moral ideal, the idea that a society should commit itself to social justice first and foremost, where social justice means looking for the institutions which most help the least well off over time, that's something I, I committed to. And in my book, Free Market Fairness, I tell the story, as, as you know from the early chapters, about the history of political philosophy. And the history is quite simple. There are sort of two big steps, it seems to me. There's the classical liberals, who are very in favor of private economic liberty, limited government, people like Adam Smith, Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, people who are very in favor of individual freedoms and limited government. And then came along a revolution, slow revolution, started in the 1850s with John Stuart Mill, gained steam in the 1920s with John Maynard Keynes, and then came into full flowering perhaps in 1970 with John Rawls writing a book called A Theory of Justice, which said that liberalism is about inclusion. Liberalism is about creating a world where everyone matters, where everyone's part of the society. And they call themselves high liberals. So from that perspective, there's an evolutionary process going on. We start off with these early liberal ideas of individual freedom. That's good. That's a, that's a correct move. But they fail to see, this is according to the high liberals, those early liberals fail to see that having freedoms without material stuff to make their freedoms valuable is kind of empty. It's that old cliche about having the right to have tea at the Ritz, but only if you can afford it. So the high liberals, they said, okay, the early liberals talked about rights, good for them. We're going to add the importance of having things to make their rights valuable. And what really struck me about that dialogue is that the high liberals seemed to assume that they had reached the end of the evolutionary process, that the process of learning and growing and understanding better what it means to respect people in a society had been realized and fulfilled by their own political view in 1970, say, by John Rawls. And I'm skeptical of that in its, on its face. I'm skeptical of the idea that we ever come to the moral truth and we're done now. I'm also skeptical of the idea that when people say of themselves that they're the high liberals and that now they've reached the end and they're the pinnacle. So my basic thought was, well, maybe there's one more stage in the evolutionary process, or at least there's a next stage beyond classical liberals to high liberals to what I call market democracy, which is the next step where we recognize the importance of people being included. We recognize the importance that people need to have not only rights, but also things to make their rights valuable. And yet we also recognize the importance of these economic liberties. Back to that core insight that a society's concern for its citizens 
should not be measured by the amount of stuff that the government hands out to the citizens. It's important that a government does help citizens with things, but rather a better society is a society that set things up in such a way that individual citizens and families can be genuinely independent, can be genuinely able to successfully build lives for themselves the way my mother built a life for our family, for example, that a, a truly good society should not aim to have ever more dependent citizens, but rather should have aim to have ever more independent citizens. And there's a higher moral ideal, I think, beyond the high liberal conception of social justice, which is, in fact, interestingly picked up by countries like Sweden, for example, I've been talking about this in the last 20 years or so, trying to think about, well, how do we minimize the size of our, of our welfare state and create the conditions in which people can actually be free and live lives of autonomy? So the way I think of it, this might be a little technical for your audience, but I'll just, the way I'll, this is how I think of it in my head. You know, Social justice is a concept that arose in the middle of the 1800s and then got stronger and stronger in 1900 all the way through the 1970s and 80s. And social justice, people on the right often object to social justice because they think it's all about big state. But my idea is that what we've seen in the past has just been one way of thinking about social justice. Lots of different theories that all rely on the idea that we should downplay economic liberty and therefore free the state to tax more, take more, and therefore redistribute more. And that's how you make a society more just. That's not a crazy idea. It's a very familiar idea from the left side of political spectrum. And there's a lot of smart people who, and sincere people who think that. But my thought was that maybe there's another way of thinking about social justice that's been undiscovered. And the undiscovered way is a way of thinking about social justice that's committed to people, committed to people having lives worth living, committed to people experiencing their life in a way that they can feel genuine respect for themselves, and yet they also get that respect because of their independence. I came to this idea primarily by studying feminism. And I became, when I was in that graduate came through in the book a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually bigger in my mind than it came into the book. I didn't want to keep talking about feminism, but I, I was really struck by what I read when I started digging into feminism, especially 18th century and 19th century feminism. And what feminists of that era would talk about, they would say that, you know, you could be, women could be given all the material means in the world. They could be, like as some of them would describe themselves, like little parakeets in a gilded cage of patriarchy where they were given food and water and nice jewels and baubles, but they're in a cage and they were never allowed to be causes of their own lives. They were always dependent on, on the men. They weren't able to hold property, for example, or to have careers or to become educated. They were treated really well, but they weren't allowed to be causes of their own states of affairs. They weren't allowed to be authors of the story of their life, the way my mother, for example, was the author of the story of her life. As I read those feminists, I read them saying, look, it sort of applies to a certain version of, say, you know, the European social democracies, where you might give citizens all the material means in the world, but it's not clear you've truly respected them by doing that. It's a kind of respect. It's a kind of way of showing concern when you make things available to other people. That's obviously a good thing to do in all kinds of ways. But is, is it really the highest way? Is something maybe missing from that way of showing concern for people? And I think what's missing is what the feminist thought was missing, which is something like giving people the chance to be the causes of the life they're leading. And that means respecting their economic liberties. It means giving people the chance to have a real opportunity to become educated, to have a real opportunity to carve out a better place for themselves and their children in this world. This struck me as a key line in the book where you mention the European model, which you were just talking about. And you say that the European model denies ordinary citizens opportunities to feel the special sense that they have done something genuinely important with their lives, 
you say the material benefits of social democracies come with a moral opportunity cost. So this is thank you for picking out that line. Key move you make. You're rooting this in morals, and you're saying people can kind of fulfill. Yes. Right. Fulfill themselves and achieve moral purpose by having economic autonomy. So I'm, yes. I'm a left liberal progressive. Yes. I, I, on the one level, like hear everything you're saying and agree and think that there's a lot to it. I also, you know, support redistributive policies and supporting people in need and who are destitute. And I imagine a lot of others would hear a line like that and say, you know, they seem pretty happy in Finland. Right. They seem pretty happy in Sweden. They don't seem to be morally wanting because the government is providing a minimal standard of, of living and care particularly in societies that we know have grown massively unequal and yes. where there are large amounts of people who are left behind. So that was some of the reaction I had, even though, again, in spirit, I'm agreeing with you, and I think that there are benefits to the kind of autonomy, economic liberty, and such that you're trying to align with traditional rights and liberties. But the details are so key here, you know, and, and that's where I, I want to go is asking you about your general thoughts on taxation. There, There's references in the book to paying for education and paying for other programs. So there's there's space for that. And this is where you depart from the the radical or the hardcore libertarians. Um, but, you know, there's a kind of, I guess I would say, uh, you seem dubious about too much of that. So how do we know? I mean, is there a methodology for determining when government activity is good, when redistributive policies are good and sensible and needed, and when we've gone too far? That's the million-dollar question, right? Where is the line? Yeah, that's great. And the question you asked about the European social democracies and the people being happy there, I think it's a great question. I, I think it's, it's really interesting. And the literature there is just fascinating. Some people say that the European social democracies, well, places like Finland and Denmark that have high uh, reported levels of happiness, they're that way because they lack diversity or they're a closed society. I think that's changing. It's not so clear that that's the case anymore. When my book came out, you know, it was written for a scholarly audience, but we were really surprised that free market fairness started to sell kind of dramatically, much faster than my publisher and I ever dreamt of. And one of the things that really surprised us, one of the things that most surprised us was that there was this blip of ebook sales in Sweden. So we were like we were tracking these places where like the map was lighting up. Chile was a place where it was lighting up. India was a place, but also Sweden was one of the ones that was really lighting up. And I was invited to give a talk when the book came out in Sweden. And then within the course of a couple of weeks, other groups of Sweden heard I was coming over, and I, I was wall to wall with talks I was giving at various to various groups in Sweden. And Sweden at the time was going through a kind of a an existential crisis. What people said to me there was that they. You may know the brief recent history of Sweden is that until the 1970s, they were really a socialist economy and really generally a socialist economy or a strongly socialist economy. Before that, they'd been a very free market economy, which made them very wealthy, but unequal in many ways. You know, By the time I was writing Free Market Fairness, they'd kind of fallen into a malaise. And what one person said to me in Sweden was that in Sweden, they were now adopting increasing market-oriented policies. So they'd gotten rid of the minimum wage. They abolished the, um, the inheritance tax. They, Sweden was doing all these things now where that were sounding sort of free markety and not what people think of as being sweet, very Swedish. They embarked on radical school choice proposition where you could send your kids to any school you wanted to, and they were encouraging charter schools. So lots of school choice now too. And so in a variety of ways, they were marketizing. And what someone said to me when I was over there, they said that in Sweden, we, we started marketizing. We left the socialist model and became more market-oriented but we did it looking down the barrel of an economic gun. 
So what they move to these market-based policies, not for sort of high-flying moral ideals, the ones that I talk about in my book, they move to those policies simply because their economy was in really bad shape because it just wasn't working to have this socialized, very top-heavy government program. But what they were starting to, what they said to me, they were excited about my book because my book was saying to them, you know, that thing you're in the process of doing, that you're regretting doing, that your feeling is tearing you away from what Sweden really is, maybe there's some moral value in it too. Maybe as you're marketizing in these various ways and giving people more choice and more freedoms, maybe you're doing something morally good too, not just something you have to do because economics are requiring it of you. So that was kind of a striking experience for me. And, and, and I'm not sure what to say about it entirely. I'm not sure what it says about where philosophy lies in this world. We, does philosophy come after the fact? We try to justify things that happen or moralize the thing, things that happen. But that's what people said to me in Sweden. And I was bringing them a message of saying, well, maybe this market mechanisms you're now bringing into your society, maybe they're not just economic necessities. Maybe there's something morally good about them too if you do it the right way. And the right way means you don't just go hardcore and property rights or bust. You try to balance property rights with other kinds of considerations. So directly to your question, you know, libertarians, strict libertarians, is about typically takes property rights to be absolutes. That's why you sometimes see bumper stickers that say taxation is theft, by which they mean any incursion on someone's pro- on my property rights is an act of theft. It doesn't matter if you're taking all my money or one cent of my money. It's, it's, it's robbery either way because it's all mine. The classical liberal view, the, the tradition I work more in, says that, that economic liberties have some important weight. And we disagree, I disagree with the high liberals who tend to minimize the importance of, of private economic liberty. There's historical reasons, like if you want to have the New Deal in the U.S., you have to change the, the way we read the Constitution to minimize the importance of property rights. So in 1937, there was a big a series of Supreme Court cases where you know, FDR wanted to create a bigger government that could do things to help people who are desperately in need, but the court kept striking things down because they were protecting property rights. So in 1937, he threatened to pack the court, and the court backed down, and we changed the way the American society took you, you know better than I do. These, I'm sorry, I'm realizing I'm talking to a constitutional <laughs> theorist you know, more than I do about this. We kind of took a sea change, I think, in terms of the way we think about economic liberty. And you know that sea change to think economic liberties don't matter in themselves That began in the 1850s with John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill thought that liberty is really important, but he thought that economic liberty is not a very important thing. Mill thought we worked just for the sake of leisure. We only work because we have to. And John Maynard Keynes in 1929 wrote a a really beautiful essay that your listeners should, I encourage them to check out if they don't know it. It's a beautiful essay called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. It's a very short essay. It's by John Maynard Keynes, beautifully written. And he says, he's writing in 1929, a time of economic despair. And Keynes says, you know what? A hundred years from now, when my grandkids are around, which is right about now, I suppose, will our economies will have grown roughly 10 times. And at that point, he says, the economic problem will have been solved. So all these bourgeois virtues, saving, scrimping, working hard for yourself, having pride in what you build, that all stuff will kind of have been part of the past. And we can get rid of those virtues and recognize them for the vices that they always were. And my thought is that the people on the left are just as wrong as the hardcore libertarians. Because one side says property rights are absolutes and they matter no matter what, any taxation is theft. And the other side tends to say, well, there's no liberty interest at play when we think about property rights. We can tax more and more. And I think actually the truth lies in between that there really is some moral weight in economic freedom. There's some moral weight in property rights that's pretty substantial. I don't think 
that a person can plausibly claim that if you tax me at 10% of my income, you violated my rights and you're stealing from me. That's a libertarian view. But I do think that there's some point at which tax rates get high enough where it really does affect people's sense of their self-worth. It really undercuts their ability to to go work with energy and with joy and with enthusiasm, where they do feel that they're being exploited because tax rates on them are too high. How do you find that rate? What is that rate? I'm not sure. It's, it's a difficult question. But I think there's something in between this sort of hard left view, which claims to have a moral monopoly on caring for the poor, which I think is really unfortunate, and the libertarian view, which claims not to care about the poor at all sometimes, if you read Ayn Rand, it's all about selfishness and, you know, <laughs> the sort of this unfortunate perspective you have on the free market that is all about greed and selfishness, which I think is a terrible, a terrible thing to have done to the free society. And there's something in between. And that's where I try to work. I mean, one of the ironies, I think, here is that in mid-20th century, marginal tax rates were much, much higher. Mm-hmm. We've actually moved right. into what many on the left consider to be a kind of ne- neoliberal era starting in the 1970s. So that, right. as I understand it, that's the kind of space we're living in now. And so I wonder how that's great. market democracy thinks about, uh, let me put it like this, when, when I think those on the left criticize free market thinking, they're not criticizing the small business owner or the private landowner. I don't think that's where the objection lies. I think it's with you know, high finance or what's right. happening with big banks and hedge funds and yes. these kind of all-powerful institutions that have enormous influence on our lives and actually deprive us, Good. many would say, of our liberty and autonomy. Good. So Good. I wonder how market democracy thinks about that aspect of the free market economy, the one that, you know, it's not a, it's not just a farmer, it's not Good. your mother, it's, That's it's right. you know, Good. it's much larger than that. That's right. Uh, so I don't, I don't address those issues explicitly in the book, but I certainly think that a free society has to be wary of concentrations of power. And usually people on the free market side, they see concentrations of power in the government as being the most dangerous concentration of power because those are typically the largest concentrations of power. But if you're serious about individual freedom and you're serious about your commitment to criticizing and to working against concentrations of power, you should be aware of the dangers of concentrations of power wherever it exists. And we're in a situation now, I think, in many ways where there are, especially with, with some of the, with the, in the tech world, where there are such concentrations of power, the ability to reach into people's lives and affect what they can see, who they can hear, who can tweet, who can't tweet, and, and things that are really important, not just, you know, tweeting sounds so trivial, but it means who has a voice, who doesn't have a voice, who gets to decide which kinds of voices get replicated and which ones get suppressed in these, in these algorithms. These are fundamental issues to all of us, They're not just private issues. These are very much issues, I think, for all of us as citizens. And so I'm concerned about not just the concentrations of wealth, which I think are extreme and, and, and worrying in many ways. I'm concerned about the amassing of power in ways that affect ordinary people's daily lives. I'm not sure what the solution to that is. I don't really have a, I don't know if there's a market solution to these things. It's a complicated story. But I, you know, when I say I care about social justice and economic freedom, I'm serious about both sides of that about that and and I don't when push comes to shove I don't always agree that the the free market has to always trump everything else I truly am a fusionist and that means I'm trying to balance these things all the way and trying to bring together what I see as genuine insights from the left with genuine insights from the right and too often it seems to me people who see themselves as working from the right or working from the left they don't really recognize the insights on the other side 
And we'd do better as a society, all of us together, if we could try to inhabit the minds of people who see the world differently than we do. We need to have everyone thinking for themselves in serious ways. And that means providing them with information and opportunities and also perhaps protecting them from some disinformation, some of the terrible stuff that's going around that people just are working from different sets of facts. Every morning, for example, my day begins by turning off my alarm and checking out two news sources. And I always go to CNN and Fox right in a row. And I look at CNN and I read the headlines and I go to Fox and I read the headlines because I'm curious to see what's going on in the world. But I'm also checking out these two different stories that two are different being, worlds. It's just, yeah. it's, it's incredible, right? And I do it literally every day. Then I go to BBC because I'm, especially lately, because I'm following the international affairs, the horrible things happening in Ukraine. But I've been doing this now for several years. And it's just really remarkable to see the way facts are just ignored. Important breaking story on one of these sites is ignored entirely on the other site. It's a strange phenomenon. And it's, but in other ways out of it, Going back and forth is my way out of it. I'm not really sure how effective it is, but I try to tell my students to do this too, to you know, try to go to both sides. But you, know, you probably know, you talked to Jonathan Rauch recently, I understand. Yeah, that's right. Who I, I'm extremely, I'm a huge fan of Jonathan Rauch. And Jonathan Rauch tells us that we have a lot of cognitive biases and we tend to see things in our own ways. And without having institutions that are gatekeepers, like journalism and universities, that are gatekeepers, keeping us tethered to reality, rather than keeping us tethered to their own ideological spin they want to put on things, then they're in real danger as a society of not really being connected to reality ourselves. And a society disconnected from reality can run into some pretty hard truths sometimes. And when that happens, if you're not ready for it, there can be you know, very fundamental shocks that can really harm us, even, even the end of society. Is there a kinship with, with your views and Tyler Cowen's, I think he calls it state capacity libertarianism, that notion of a limited state, but a strong state. You know, this is, maybe this is uh, what you're going to be writing about in your book on libertarianism. Seems to have shifted to not just, you know, antipathy towards government or just flat hostility towards it, but recognizing that government can do some things very well. It's necessary. It needs to be empowered, actually, to do a limited set of things very well. Is that in line with your your views? So the new book, I just finished it. I co-authored it with a, a guy named Matt Zulinski, who's a professor out at University of San Diego. Matt and I wrote this book that we just finished it last week, like I said, and sent it off to the press, Princeton. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's, a, it's a big book, and it's a, a great, a really fun project. It's basically a history of the idea of the free society, or it's a history of libertarianism, I suppose. And it's called The Individualists, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Battle for the Soul of Libertarianism. And what we do briefly in the book is describe these sort of three great phases of libertarian thinking. When most people today think about, and your audience thinks about libertarians, they probably think about a very narrow range of people from the late 20th century in the United States, people like Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, Murray Rothbard, maybe Friedrich Hayek, Mises maybe, who are very strong advocates of private economic liberty, who were not very interested in issues of race, who tended to oppose the Civil Rights Act, for example, because they've advocated private economic liberties above all else. And what we show, what Matt and I show is that there was an earlier phase of libertarianism in the United States in particular that really came out of abolitionism. The shaping character of libertarian thinking, of free market thinking, is always very much reactive against certain tendencies of the age. In the late 20th century, when the 
what we call the famous, the Cold War band of libertarians were writing, the biggest threat on the horizon was state socialism and communism. Communism abroad with nuclear weapons, but socialism at home, right, from the left. So they saw that fight, the fight against socialism, as their greatest rival, and they sort of radicalized their economic liberties views so they wouldn't give a single itch on economic liberties. Even when times when parts of the Civil Rights Act, which required, for example, that you know, people who own lunch counters, if they're an open business, they have to serve everyone, not just pick and choose who they wanted. Libertarians of that era, they were opposed to those parts of the Civil Rights Act. And they, some of them, you know, like Barry Goldwater, Goldwater right? yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. voted against them for those, for those kind of principled reasons. That's because they're in an era where they really saw economic liberty as the thing you, had, you couldn't compromise on. Strikingly, though, the first libertarians in America, they were anim animated primarily by anti-slavery. And they saw slavery as the ultimate condition of unfreedom. And they saw freedom of labor as the fundamental freedom. So they tended to be socialists. So they were individualists. They were market-oriented. They were very interested in French philosopher Proudhon, who's one of the great fathers of socialism. They were strongly anti-Marxist. Marx was a young person now sort of writing his first stuff because Marx is a state socialist. So they were very opposed to Marx. But they loved Proudhon. And in those early magazines of libertarians, mainly out of Boston, the first Americans were libertarians, anarchists, and socialists. And they were vehemently on the side of slave liberation. They were very involved with attempts to free slaves. They sent pamphlets to try to stimulate slave revolts. They were fundamentally on the side of human freedom, whatever person's race might be. And then, so then it changed a lot, but <laughs> went from that to being opposed in the Civil Rights Act. And now we're in a stage, as you just mentioned, with Heather Cowan and others, a third wave of libertarianism. That I'm, I'm part of that wave too, I suppose, and so is Matt Swolinski. I think we're in a stage of really struggling now. The current era, they're trying to decide, libertarians are trying to decide for themselves, are they racially progressive or are they racially reactionary? And I think the sad fact is that um, on the ground, especially as a public matter, you know, libertarianism banners have, have been drawing people who, are, who have racist tendencies or actually are racists. At the same time, there are progressive libertarians who are, are remembering where, how it began in America and are thinking that liberty for everyone matters, not just white liberty, but black liberty too. One of our chapters is all about race, and I wrote that chapter, I drafted that chapter, and there's a, there's a section called BLM, which stands for Black Liberty Matters. And we try to ask, well, has black liberty always mattered to libertarians? Did it matter to Barry Goldwater and people of his era? But you know, opposing the Civil Rights Act and those principled reasons, I can understand why a person would oppose the Civil Rights Act, because they trample on private economic liberty. But what about the liberty of the other people? What about the liberty of the black people who want to be served as normal citizens at a lunch counter? That must matter too. And the contemporary libertarians are thinking more about that. Yeah, Goldwater's view, I just, I mean, you know, he had a department store here. I think he may have taken it over from his parents, if I recall. But at any rate, you know, he resented the government saying, this is what you need to pay. That's right. is, and he said, look, I take care of my workers. You know, I, right. I can do it. That's good. And that's my right. reaction to that is always, yeah, you might have been a nice guy, but that's not an assurance that, you know, everyone else is going to provide for their workers in the way that you did or that right. there shouldn't be some minimum floor. So no, I it's complex. It's it's complex. I love, what you, I love the way you put that because I think that's, that's kind of a left-right dividing point right there because I hear what you said and I agree with you. And yet part of me, I think a bigger part of me than perhaps of you I hear the part where someone like Barry Goldwater apparently thinks, well, don't tell me what to do. That is, in a free society, bad things are going to happen, bad choices are going to be made. That's probably what it means to be in a free society. Now, 
I know, <laughs> you know a, a person of privilege can say that more easily than a person who's going to be on the receiving end of some of these free choices that people make. And so that's kind of the, that's the tension we, we have. But there's some, I think, that's, I think you're right. It's, it's not just about the people who opposed the Civil Rights Act weren't simply defending economic liberty. They were also, as you say, I think with Barry Goldwater, they were also saying, we don't want to be told what to do, period, because that's an incursion on liberty. And incursions on liberty don't tend to, once they happen, they don't tend to decrease and go backwards. They just tend to ratchet up. And that's why people on the free market side tend to think every incursion on liberty should be looked at very skeptically because it's going to ratchet us up to ever less freedom, ever more state control. Now, that's a, that's a view from the libertarian yeah. side, right? It's not the only view I am. I'm well aware. Well, this is a, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank, Thank you, you very much for the time. We'd like to end by asking our guest for a recommendation of a a book or a documentary or a podcast or anything that is in the spirit of what we've been talking about today or more broadly civil discourse. I'll make two recommendations and they'll be a little bit off the wall. I mean, the, we welcome that. <laughs> There's a book about if you're interested in education and where we are today and how we how we got here. There's just a wonderful book by a, a fellow named Frederick Rudolph and it's called American Colleges and Universities A History. And this book was published a long time ago, published before I was born. It came out in 1960. So it might seem strange for me to say, well, read this book that was published in 1960. But this book tells a story about the history of American universities that's shed so much light on our current situation, in part because it's not embroiled in the current debates where he died before, <laughs> before all, this, all this stuff has happened. But it's a really great book. It's known among education historians as kind of a classic. And I've several times heard uh, my professor friends say, if only Frederick Rudolph could be alive now to write a new, new edition because we know what he'd think about where we are right now. But that's a really, it's a really great book. It's still in print and it's a treasure. On the podcast side, I'll be even more idiosyncratic. There's a, a podcast by a former student of mine. It's called Meditations with Zohar. And it's a podcast that I was on it a couple weeks ago. It's fascinating. He talks with his people about how they see life, how they understand conflict, how they understand redemption through conflict, how they talk about passages in our lives. And he just has a wonderful way of asking questions that are um, very refreshing. I, I remember I was, I, when I was doing that podcast, I saw it on my calendar, and I was, I was very busy that day and didn't want to do it, but I kind of had committed to it, so I did it. And after I finished the hour talking with him, I felt like I'd been gone to like a spiritual spa, <laughs> and I felt better for several days afterwards. So I just your listeners might find that interesting. It's a way to think, oh, you know, there's deeper things happening among us, deeper things happening with, within us that are beautiful that are worth attending to, that take time that we often don't give them, Zohar's podcast kind of brings us back to some of those things. Are you still on the motorcycle? <laughs> no, I'm no longer on a motorcycle. I started rowing, but that's as dangerous as I get these days. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs>